Are you ready to learn about winning from one of the greatest motivational speakers in history? Buckle on up. You are about to get an Ivy League education from a titan of motivation. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today on The Motivation Show is the author of 16 nonfiction books, including some of the greatest motivational books of all time, like The Psychology of Winning, Seeds of Greatness, Being the Best, and Winner's Edge. The Psychology of Winning has been one of the most listened to audio programs in the world on personal mastery. Our guest studied and inspired winners in every field from Fortune 500 top executives to young entrepreneurs, from NASA astronauts to Olympic athletes and Super Bowl champions. A very warm welcome to The Motivation Show, Dennis Waitley. Oh, thank you very much, Eli. It's great to be with you. It's great to be on your program. Well, Dennis, I have to tell you, 22 years ago, I was fortunate to have had you at my company, the Seminar Center. You did a seminar for me. And you asked me something that I thought, actually, I asked you a question, <laughs> I should say, that was very profound. I don't expect you to remember the answer 22 years ago, but I have a feeling you're going to have a sense of what your answer was. And I'm going to tell you that story, if I may. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, basically, I had asked you about some of your contemporaries, other people that were on the stage at the same time, people with some enormous big personalities that lit up the room. And they were really, really good at selling their products on stage. And they made no apologies about actually going ahead and pushing those products. Now, the products were good, but they kind of pushed it a little bit. And sometimes you, you might say they almost went overboard with it. So I asked you, Dennis, why are you perhaps the only motivational person at that level that doesn't quite feel that he has to push his books, yet somehow you sell them anyway? Any idea what you said to me, Dennis? Well, uh, I, probably the same thing I'd say today when people ask me, you know, I decided that, uh, to be a teacher if I had the real thing that people would seek me out. So my mission was to teach and to give everything I have without being concerned about how much money was in the room. And we've had some conversations since then, but I was, shall we say, uh, taught by Earl Nightingale, Paul Harvey, Norman Vincent Peale, my friend Art Linkletter, and, and some of those, and they said, you know, you choose, teacher, salesman, combination, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I'm more comfortable, I guess I'm just a school teacher, and I'm a school teacher in motivational clothing, 
And also, I don't have the personality that is the, uh, shall we say, the extrovert. I'm an introvert. I'm sort of a Bob Newhart personality. Good analogy, Bob Newhart, yeah. Yeah, so it, as kind of a self-effacing kind of guy that comes up and says, I should be in the audience because I don't recognize myself. And I, I clapped when I was introduced because I didn't recognize who it was that we were introducing. So instead of being a style, that's just me. I'm as good as the best, but no better than the rest. And I've never had an ego. And along the way, my ego disappeared. And I'm just like, I'm Johnny Everyman. So I, I consider myself a Johnny Appleseed who, who throws some seeds out. Some of them take, many of them don't. But I'm an awareness guy, not a motivational guy. And I'm a little more cerebral than some, a little more pragmatic than some. So I know somebody said, you're no Tony Robbins. And I said, no, I, I can't be something I'm not. He's six feet six and he had wears all black and he commands the stage. And Zig Ziglar was a dear friend of mine all throughout his life. Uh, and Zig used to say, Dennis, you're leaving money on the table. I said, well, not that much, but a little bit. Yes, but I said, remember Zig, you've been selling sandwiches and, and waterless cookware your whole life. And remember what you say. You have my money in your pocket and I have your books and CDs and tapes in this bag. <laughs> and you've got two references in cash. I'll give you your books and tapes if you give me my money. And he was the kind of guy, and the other ones are as well, who can teach and tell you what you're going to benefit from and then encourage you to go back to the table and they'll sign them for you. And a lot of people do what they're told. So they, they are persuaded in a very good way to do something that's good for them. My feeling is I give them all I've got. And if they want to follow me later or get more information, the MC might tell them that or, the, or somebody else. But I won't get up and, and promote one of my books or, or works or a seminar or a coaching system or a challenge. I'm not a funnel guy. You know, I'm not a funnel guy that, that builds you from escalating from free to an escalating offer and then finally hit you with the flagship product at the end of the pitch. It just isn't in my DNA. Well, I'll tell you, I was interviewed yesterday for a motivational show myself. Somebody asked me to name my top five motivational, inspiring people of all time. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that you were in my top five. And Earl Nightingale was in my top five. Okay, you were in my top five. And the reason for that is because what you say and do resonates with me. Because I'm this shy kid that was brought up in Queens, you know, rather insecure and had to find a better path for myself. Okay. So I'm not the, you know, the Zig Ziglar or Tony Robbins, at least I wasn't at that time. You know, I've discovered that I can be more than that shy kid from Queens, but I got to see you when you uh, did a seminar for Columbia university in New York city, when your book empires of the mind came out, which I still have that hard copy of hardcover copy. And so, yeah, so you resonated with me and your teachings have resonated with me that you don't have to be born the so-called class clown. You don't have to be, you know, uh, live up to impossible standards of a Tony Robbins or a Zig Ziglar. If you can help anybody get what, what, what they want, they'll help you get what you want. You know, I mean, Zig was just a masterful presenter, but you can be different and still present your message and be extremely effective, which you have. 
Well, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, it's just who I am. I just can't get down on one knee like he, he would he would do. And, and Tony Robbins has his style. And I remember giving a eulogy for Jim Rohn because my style was a little more like Jim's and yes. the fact that he was, Jim would sit on a stool and have a, a white, you know, flip chart behind him and he had a reading glasses on at half mass. Yep. His most motivational statement was, you're going to like this one or you're going to want to write this down. But I never saw him hold up the products of the day and say, you're going to want to buy this. He would say, you, you want to write this one down or this is something I've learned. And so Earl Nightingale said, Jim was very authentic in what he did. And so I'm just more of that Shire style. I remember Stephen Covey when many, many years ago said, Dennis, how do you get those three and $5,000 speeches? And I said, Stephen, you have to be a little humorous. <laughs> you have to have a little, a little humor, yeah. Stephen. And, you know, we had the goose that laid the golden egg and he had the saw and he was teaching at BYU. And Stephen was not known as a motivational speaker, but he was known more for the leadership ideas that he had and put in the book, The Seven Habits. But I remember distinctly saying to him, Stephen, you're getting those $40,000 speeches as a result of the seven habits. And he said, yeah, isn't it amazing? And I don't have the sense of humor, Dennis. I said, I know. I said, so you don't have to have the sense of humor either. So you don't have to be an entertainer to be someone who is a deliverer of information. And so that's just been the way I am. And, and you're like that too, but I think it's a lot of it is our childhood. I mean, I was raised in a poor family with low self-esteem. My dad made $200 a month. He said, you'll never live in a house like that. Uh, he said, the rich people live there and they're born that way or crooked. I thought you had to be a crook or born with it to get it. Wow. So I resigned myself to be a teacher, but immediately $1,000 a month would have been a king's ransom for me in those days. So, and we, I, I figured we always be at war because we were at war all throughout my boyhood. In fact, a senior in high school, North Korea invaded South Korea. So I ran for the Naval Academy because my dad said, if you go to the Naval Academy, you'll die four years later. <laughs> yeah. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you go through officer's training school for four years so you don't get killed until you get in the battlefield. And I said, well, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, well, you're going to be in a war most of your life, so you might as well be an officer. So I did something that I didn't want to do. I became a carrier-based Navy jet pilot during the wars, and I wanted to be Rod Serling. I wanted to write the Twilight Zone. Mm. I wanted to, and so I went on a safari in a total different direction as a guy with low self-esteem, divorced parents, alcoholism uh, in my father, and I only saw him once a year after I graduated from the Naval Academy. So I think my, uh, my greatest, shall we say, learning has been that I've learned when I'm at my worst, I need to be at my best. In other words, I need to bring my A-game to the table right now in these days rather than get hysterical and panic and worry and fearful. I need to have the most clarity and bring out the best in me when things are not going well. 
And so that's why I did my best work at my worst time in my life. That's incredible. We're in a tough world today, and people's responses to that often is to tune into the news, which then self-perpetuates you know, their belief that the world is crumbling. So what is your recommendation on how to get out of that mindset and be more productive despite all the challenges? Well, I think one of the things uh, Paul Harvey used to say, bad news sells, the fire that burns another warms the general population and the fact they're glad they weren't the victim of the day. So people actually feel insulated and isolated from the problems when they see what everyone else is facing and it hasn't hit them that hard yet. So they feel somehow relieved that all this is happening, but so far they've been isolated from it. So bad news is meant to shock you. It's meant to certainly tell you what's happening, but it also builds ratings because people have this visceral need to be shocked and to be titillated viscerally. That's why we go to shocking movies and that's why we watch things that are terrifying. We ride roller coasters. We get a faster heartbeat. We, we need this kind of stimulation. And the stimulation from the shock effect of the news stuns most people. And even though it insulates and isolates them, it stuns them and makes them stew instead of do. So it, it, it makes them in a situation where they can't take action because they're absolutely hypnotized by everything that's going wrong. So they say, why me? And they watch the news. They count the number of new cases. They count the deaths by the day. And the numbers keep increasing and perpetuating. Makes you more and more frightened, more and more self-contained. So I feel that people gravitate toward the shock effect, which is why you'll find traffic jams around accidents. The reason there's a traffic jam around an accident is people rubberneck and want to see if there's anybody laying on the highway. It's a negative way of being alarmed, but it's being fascinated at the same time. I feel just the opposite. I feel that when times are bad, I mean, I, I need to right now, look, look at my age. I, I'm in that upper age group. I'm in the top one half of 1%. You look amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm 87 years old. Hard so to I'm believe. 80, so I'm 87. I have had a new heart valve. I have atrial fibrillation. I have a predisposition toward pulmonary problems. My grandfather died of double pneumonia. If I ever get sick, it's in the lungs. So you would think that with everything that's going on, I would be really self-isolated and frightened. But instead, I'm alert. So the, the fear has turned on my alarm, but my alarm is not a siren. My alarm is focus, clarity, all the senses working. What do I need to do? What, 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 what's the answer? What's so the can I ask you, Dennis, I mean, you know, so you're, Dr. Susan Jeffers wrote the book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, right? Yeah. So are, are you feeling the fear, but you're just not letting it dictate you? Now, most people are feeling the fear and they just can't overcome the fear. How are you overcoming that fear? Well, probably because I was trained as a Navy pilot and being shot off a carrier at night in the middle That'll of the do storm. It. And, and I was afraid 
because I knew when they went like this and they catapulted me off, I'd be at 120 miles an hour, not being able to see, not knowing where I am, and being a poet as a pilot. Now, poets don't make good pilots because poets are looking at the clouds and they're watching the water and everything, but a pilot needs to be really alert. So what, what has happened to me is I'm very alert. So instead of waking up to an alarm clock, I wake up automatically ready for the day. So I've, here's what I learned from the astronauts and the Olympians and the prisoners of war. I've learned that courage is being well-prepared. And courage is not having this macho, just gonna do it anyway. Courage is being prepared for what can happen. So I'm very well-prepared. So what it means for me is that my fear turns me into a sentinel where I'm on the alert and my pupils are dilated more. And I'm looking for solutions. I'm looking for what food should I eat? How should I social distance? Uh, how should I deal with my grandchildren? What's the best thing I can do to prepare myself to prevent this from happening to me? So what's the answer? What's the next step? Instead of saying, oh my gosh, it could happen to me. I got to be careful. I, I don't want to go to the store. Where's my mask? Oh, I wear my mask and I wash my hands much more often. And I'm washing them and I'm social distancing. I'm doing all the preparation, but the most that I'm doing is being the best that I can be at the very worst of times, because that's when I need to be. You need to be at your best. When things are going well, you coast. And you know, things are going well and you kind of take it a little easy. You're feeling great, you're on top of the world, you're a winner, you're a champion, but you need to remember that tomorrow is always has something new to offer. So I expect the best, prepare for the worst and expect to be surprised. Mm -hmm. And then the surprise may be something that I didn't anticipate. So I'm trying to be as prepared as I possibly can. So I only watch the news for need to know for family and us. And then I only pass on things that will help people. I don't pass on fear or pass on the problem because everybody knows that they're watching the news. All you have to do is turn on any channel and you'll get it. So I only watch need to know, then I spend the rest of my time doing things that, that benefit me and others. You know, Dennis, um, there are some people who uh, don't appreciate motivation like you and I and inspiration and the psychology, and they may look at it and say, well, you're Dennis Waitley, you know, sure, you can uh, overcome those things. You know, look how you've been trained. Of course, they bypass the fact that you're human like the rest of us. So, but there's a lot of people out there who uh, who think that it's, something that only others can, can achieve, that mindset. Uh, how do you speak to those people who just can't break out of that pattern, even though they, they scientifically know that focusing on the negative is just not going to, you know, feed their mind properly? Well, I think they, they bought into the idea that it's just the way I am. It's my personality. Personality is inborn, and so are genetic predispositions. So I have my personality. I always say I have a great taste for radio. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of glad we're on radio because I have a better face for radio than I do for TV. So what, what I have said is that the brain is the most marvelous biocomputer ever created. And the brain looks for what's important to you. 
And if you can just train your brain to look for solutions instead of problems, because the brain only cares about what's important. And it could be the problems are important. Your blemishes are important. Uh, Everything that's happening wrong is important to you. And so you keep looking for more of that. And you, you actually count your blemishes instead of your blessings. And they're so apparent to all of us that if we spend our time looking at what's wrong, it would be everywhere. On the other hand, the brain is so constructed that if you feed it images of desire rather than penalties of failure, people actually rewire their brain because instead of being a, instead of being a movie, that is set in film, our memory is a music video that's being edited every time we say it, every time we remember it. I like that. So so we're editing as we go, and we're changing the past every time we talk about it. And each of us, whether we realize it or not, is constantly editing to make the things that are important to us more glaringly prominent. And the thing, so what's more important to me is the good things that have happened, which I cling to, the good things in my past, the things that I've been able to cling to during tough times. But for many people, they have trouble getting rid of the negative things in the past, and they think they're there. If they would just realize that they could do a little reversal, just a little brain train in about six months, if they were concentrating on the reward on the direction they were going, if they just kept the the front view of the vehicle where they were going instead of the rear view mirror, they could just look at life this way instead of that way and looking back at the way things are, the way things were, because you never make a future decision, only a current decision in the instant that impacts your entire future. So Mm -hmm. your future is determined minute by minute every day and therefore everything you do has the ability to change your future if you'll just look for the desire the reward instead of always reaching back to the penalty i know how difficult it may be but in talking to prisoners of war they had two choices say why me and be in the cell or they projected themselves back to where they wanted to be home And they began to project and think about things that would bring them closer to home for five and a half years at the Hanoi Hilton in solitary confinement. You can't go outside. You can't see the sun. You can't talk to anybody else. You can only talk to yourself. When you talk to yourself, you can either talk yourself down or talk yourself up. It's not Pollyanna. It's the, it's the best way to survive. And, You know, I have some really good insights from, as we talked about earlier, Dr. Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning about the Holocaust. How could you find anything good about being in those death camps in the Holocaust? Amazing question. Amazing. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, if you can find meaning there, (laughs) most of us are, thank God, not facing that kind of situation. You have been surrounded, as you said before, you have a lot of colleagues and friends, and I may add a, a name or two to the list, you know, going way back, W. Clement Stone, Earl Nightingale, Billy Graham, Dr. Jonas Salk, Norman Vincent Peale, Zig Ziggly, Jim Rohn. I, I have to get another gem out of one, one of those experiences you've had with one of them. 
Can, can you think of one gem from any of those giants that you can share? Yeah, Jonas Salk, uh, I became president of his private foundation. I raised a lot of money for him. And he says, you're an interesting young man. He said, you have a good way of describing and discussing scientific things. He said, I want to warn you, though. Please don't tell people they can walk on water. Tell them <laughs> they need pontoons. And give them things that they're capable of doing but they're afraid to do, but they have the capability, but don't try to be a, a magician. Dennis, you're, you're an awareness mechanism, not a magician. And if you'll just stick to the things that are scientifically proven, you'll go a lot further to be somebody that has these breakthrough ideas. He said, stick, stick to facts, if you will. He said, they're not as exciting, but uh, it's better to be proven than to be speculating. Wow. Your latest book, which I've been reading, Winning for Life, you introduced new research there on how to rewire and train your brain like an internal GPS, you say, system to reach your goals. And you say, quote, happiness cannot be traveled to, owned, earned, worn, or consumed. Happiness is the spiritual experience of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. Time can only be spent, not saved. The secret is making every day rich in every way. Now, that has a lot of profoundness to me. Care to elaborate, Dennis? Uh, certainly, especially now. Because uh, in 2018, I decided that I wanted to live to be 100. And so in 2018, I was 85 traveling all over China and getting a little shortness of breath once in a while, atrial fibrillation, and my grandmother had a, a valve problem. So I decided to get a new heart valve so I could live to be 100. And the surgeon made a mistake and cut my femoral artery, and I nearly bled out on the operating Oops. So I nearly died there, but I nearly died four times later because of infections. And the very thing I was trying to solve, my mm. heart valve, my new heart valve became infected to the point where I nearly died from the infection oh, of my, my new heart valve. And this happened over almost a year and a half. So, I, so you come to today, and as I was looking at my own vulnerability and looking at my own, shall we say, mortality, it dawned on me that I had bought into the same thing that most people buy into. I was being more of a how, how shall I say it, status seeker than servant leader. In mm -hmm. other words, I was yeah. enjoying getting standing ovations. I was enjoying being Dennis on stage. I was enjoying traveling all throughout China and having them say, oh, you're in your 80s. You're so old and so wise and Chinese audiences by the thousands. I said, good. I go to China because they think old people are, are wise. That's a good place for me to be. <laughs> Then I realized that I bought into the idea of my own self-importance only to understand that my mortality put me in a situation where I now know that I'm as good as the best, but no better than the rest. Now I realize there's no up there. There's no top. There's no getting to the top. There's no atmospheric pedestal that were there. In fact, the older you become, 
the more insignificant you are until you reach the final area of insignificance where you're surrounded by the dear ones, your friends and family who love you. And they're the ones who've been, been supporting you all the way. And it finally dawned on me that I should have lived in the moment, but not for the moment. And instead of relishing where I was at the moment, I should have been like an Olympian and been enjoying that moment in time that's neither forward nor backward, but it's loving what you're doing right then because that's the only time you have any control. Wow. And so I went full circle. And what I've profoundly learned uh, is that when you're my age, you realize when I wake up in the morning and say safe again, thank you for this new day. What am I going to do to help someone, to help some living thing, an animal, a plant, uh, a tree, the sea, uh, my children, my grandchildren, my great, what can I do to help someone with this day to make me feel that I'm spending my time in a way that makes me grateful? Well, what's fascinating about what you just said is that from a layperson, you know, who looks at someone like a Dennis Waitley on stage or looks at a Tony Robbins or looks at a Zig Ziglar, the immediate impression is they've reached the top. They're at the top. How do I get to the top? Often people say, you know, whether they're willing to work for it or not, or they're kidding themselves. But most people look at you in awe often. You know, I'm sure you've had many people come to you and been in some, somewhat awe of you. So, uh, so are you saying that no matter what level you've achieved, there just isn't a top? In other words, you're still always seeking? No, I'm, I'm saying that an older woman who has a rose garden and she loves roses and she loves gardening and she loves flowers and she's intensely passionate about the loving care that she gives for this, but she doesn't enter her roses into a contest. She doesn't get a ribbon uh, and she doesn't get featured for having a rose garden, but that doesn't take away right. the influence and the feeling that she has. So I'm saying that whatever you're doing, if you're doing it with the spirit of passion and excellence and it benefits whatever you're doing and other people, and it's not done at their expense, you're not trampling on people. But I'm saying that there's nothing at the top. And, and the reason I do this is two things, Billy Graham one and John, Coach John Wooden the other. And very quickly, Billy Graham said to me, how many lives do you change? I said, <laughs> I said one, Dr. Graham, I've allowed mine to be changed. And he said, me too. I said, come on, 40,000 people in the arena tonight. They come from the outfield to the infield. He said, no, no. I believe everything in this book is true. And you're still on your struggling journey to decide how much of it is true for you. But he said, I, I really admire you because you're a self-awareness guy like me. We don't change lives. We bring people an opportunity to decide if they're ready to do what they say they want to do. He said, but Dennis, 90% of the people go, go back to being themselves the same night. He said, so I don't take credit for changing any lives. I just create wow. an awareness of what I believe. And then John Wooden came, he was in his early 90s, and I was in my late 60s, almost 70. And he said, you got to stand an ovation after you spoke. And I said, but Coach Wooden, you got one going in and coming out. I said, they looked at my pro pro program to see who, who was absent. They didn't know who I was. I had to work so hard to make them love me. 
And he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, you and I are standing in the back of the arena, right? I said, yes. He said, is anyone taking their picture with us? I said, no. He said, we haven't been on television enough. He, he said, I'm an old coach and they, they watched me on the stage, but now you and I are in the back having a cup of coffee. We're not famous for who we are. We're not in the limelight, the spotlight. The, he said, you and I are, I'm a coach and you're a coach. We're older gentlemen. I would love to be with my wife now more than getting all those 16 championships or whatever they were. He said, I love what I do. But he said, we only have the 14 or 17 minutes. He said, Andy Warhol was right. The idea is not to be in the spotlight. The idea is to shine your light on the things that are important to you. And I thought both of those gentlemen kind of told me that it was more important to be doing something that you're passionate about rather than the accolades you might receive for having gotten there. Mm. So I'm not impressed with myself at all. And I never have been. But that doesn't mean that I'm punishing myself, right. thinking that I'm somehow worse than others. I'm, I'm just no... My gardener, for example, is a horticulturist. A waitress is a food service executive to me. So I look at everyone on an equal plane and therefore I don't feel better or worse than anyone. And at least it makes me grateful for what I've got, but it doesn't make me have any hubris or conceit. And I think conceit makes you shallow because you're covering up a lightly valued self with a little pomp and circumstance. And we all have a little bit of that in us. After all, we're a little narcissistic. We, we like that feeling. We like to blow out the candles and have people uh, feature us. That's natural. It's a yep. natural human trait to be wanted, loved, and needed, and featured. But it's also like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. So I've decided that I waited a little too long to live in the moment. And now I'm living in the moment, every moment of my life, realizing I'm in the two-minute drill of the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. And had I thought about it a little bit, maybe in the third quarter, I would have taken a little easier, maybe not taken that many trips, not tried to get that many bookings, not tried to make that much money. Maybe I would have uh, slowed it down and smelled, smelled the roses a little bit. I probably should have looked at the scenery a little more. And if I could live my life again, I would probably be in the moment rather than seeking fame more. Well, I, lo I love that because so many people can relate to you. I can relate to you. I've been there. You know, I used to, I, I think I told you the story off the air on how, about how I was running two different businesses, candle, uh, burning the candle at both ends, thinking that uh, the answer was really to be busy and why have idle time? You know, you're, how could you be successful if you have idle time? only to find out the hard way that that wasn't the answer. And there's a lot of celebrities and uh, high achievers who actually, uh, when, when they look back, they feel the same way. They weren't in the moment. I interviewed Dwight Gooden, of course, the great New York Mets and New York Yankees pitcher. And I asked him about, uh, you, you are like the best pitcher in the world back in the early 1980s. He says, yeah, but uh, at the time, I didn't enjoy it because I, didn't, I wasn't in the moment. I was always thinking you know, about the next moment, uh, what I had to do, and I just didn't appreciate that moment. And if I had to do it all over again, perhaps I wouldn't have, uh, you know, made the mistakes that I made because, you know, he had some issues, of course, uh, with uh, 
drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And so, yeah, it's uh, some of the great ch uh, heroes and champions will say the same thing. And that's a great learning lesson. It really is. And the sooner people learn it, I think the, the more they can enjoy life. That's why I say chase your passion, not your pension. I mean, if you're engaged in loving what you're doing, that's one of the greatest things in life is to find something that you love to do, that you do just for food. Uh, you, you do it no matter what, and you'd probably give your life for it because it's so passionate. Your why is big enough. And the other, the other thing I learned from uh, Viktor Frankl was something very interesting. He said that the people in the death camps in the Holocaust, if they had their last piece of bread, they had two choices, hoard it, eat it, protect it, keep it, but don't share it, live. No, no, break your last piece of bread in half and give it to somebody who needs it more than you. You live longer uh, than if you ate it. Wow. By, having, by taking responsibility for something bigger than yourself, for someone other than you, you create a why and a purpose, a meaning in life that makes life so much more meaningful, makes you want to live, makes you want to get back to your family, makes you want to to be part of the future and get justice, whatever it is you're living for. But I thought to myself, wow. So the more I help people, the more I give people what I have, because I think money and knowledge are exactly the same. You get them, they don't do you any good unless you employ them and finally give them away. But you haven't lost anything as long as you're living. I live the golden years in order to live a life where I don't have to be dependent on my children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren. I wanna live in dignity, and I wanna make my choices, and I don't wanna be a burden. So I have this desire to be independent, but at the same time, I am so grateful that I'm, I'm giving away all the money that I have earned while I'm alive. And I'm doing that with passion projects with my, I'm not giving my grandchildren money, I'm, I'm having them come to me and say, Papa, here's what I, if, if, if I could do this, if I could get this business plan, if I could, but I won't, I won't give them money for a car. I won't give them money for a vacation, but if they have a passion project, I'll say, okay, what, what, what's exciting? What, what would you do? And then I invest with them. I feel so good, but I'm not taking credit for it, but it's like knowledge. You have to keep giving it. You haven't lost it. You still have it. But why keep it when you could give it away? And that's why I don't want to charge very much for what knowledge I have, because I want to spread it out as often as I can, rather than to use it to make money from. Dennis, half the world feels that they're stuck. Whether it's true they're stuck or not, whether it's just a belief system, a lot of people will tell me, you know something, I have a family to feed. Some people making a decent living, uh, some people making great livings, but they won't change. However, they're not in their passion. They're not doing what they know deep inside is what they were put on this earth to do because they feel that they just can't make the change. In other words, they're making enough money. They don't want to take the risk. You know, they have got the family of, of six people to feed. They don't want to risk. How do you address something like that? The best way I can say it is that every book I've written has been at night 
or on Saturday or sometimes Sunday, mostly Saturday. So what I learned is instead of watching other people making money, having fun in their profession, instead of being a spectator, I decided to jump into prime time and start living in prime time, knowing that during the day I had to put food on the table for my four children and my wife and being a Navy pilot and struggling, doing things I didn't want to do. I finally realized that my passion had to be done while other people are watching television. Now, when people are watching game shows, when people are watching sitcoms, when they're watching documentaries, docudramas, they're relaxing, they're getting away from the monotony of their everyday job, and they're getting some tension relieving activity. I understand that. A little music, a little sports, a little laughter, uh, family discussions at the table. But then, especially it's difficult for women because women have to do more because they have to take care of dual responsibilities more and they have more than one responsibility. But whenever you can, I plead with everyone, stop watching other people making money doing what they love. Start doing what you love in your free time as much as possible. Because when the books you write, they're not going to be written when you're earning money, when you're helping other people, when you're in your job, when you have a boss. We all have a, a boss of some kind that determines our take-home pay. So start living instead of watching. And when I started doing that, and I learned that from Lee Trevino. <laughs> Lee Trevino said, I don't know, you know, uh, as long as there's daylight, there are golf balls to be hit. And he said, you know, the blisters on my hands tell me whether I'm going to be a good golfer. He said, so I kind of need to get in to start doing what I want to do. And then I said, wait a minute. You mean you have to be doing what you want to do or you'll never do it? Because if you keep postponing it on layaway or you put it on someday aisle, it will never happen. Mm. So you must be doing now what you want to do in the future. And the only free time you have is sometimes in the weekend and sometimes in the evening or early morning. So my advice to people would be chase your passion in prime time. Don't watch other people in prime time. So eliminate a lot of the distractions, the newspapers, the social media, all the temptations that are there 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a week. Don't be tethered to your smartphone. Uh. And don't count the number of, of Instagram and the number of social media mm. followers you have. It's not a numbers game yeah. for who's following you. You need to be chasing your passion. You, you really do because that's an illusion. That is a mirage because in the final analysis, uh, people are only interested in, in, in what they're doing. It's a, it's a what's in it for me kind of thing. My grandchildren said, wow, Papa, I got so many hits on my profile. Uh, I'm wearing this really super outfit and I got 142 hits. And I said, for you, what you want is to get the one hit that's going to change your life and be your life partner. So you're not trying to be popular to everyone. You're just trying to be something of value to someone. Hit that home run. Yeah, absolutely. Now you talk in your book about Roger Bannister. Of course, Roger Bannister was famous for breaking that four minute mile. And up until then, there was a mindset for many people that that was impossible to break a four minute mile. Uh, you talk about, you know, once you stop believing something is impossible, it becomes possible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we have this, this barrier. We all have it. And it's real even though it's invisible. 
it's invisible because that's what imagination teaches us. Imagination teaches us that knowledge is limited to what is happening now, but imagination is unlimited because it introduces us to things that have not yet happened, whether it's, whether it's Elon Musk and whether it's Tesla or whether it's what's happening now. So, so here's what I think. I think that uh, the sound barrier, which uh, Chuck Yeager broke, we absolutely totally believed that the airplane would shake apart when it hit that sound barrier. Because when you're flying a jet like I would, the sonic boom goes ahead of you and it hits the ground and goes boom. And it's a, it's a, it's a barrier that, is, that seems real to us and we thought it would shake apart, but he flew right through it and then realized that once, you're, once you just hit that little boom, it's free sailing just like Roger Bannister. So I think we have psychological barriers that are much greater than the physical barriers. And so start looking at what you think is impossible and where that comes from and you'll probably discover that it's secondhand information. Why did the woman cut both ends off of her ham, off the ham in the baking dish? The young husband went to the mother and said, well, because my mother did. He finally went to the grandmother and said, well, why do you cut both ends of the ham off? And she said, my baking dish is too small. And so we tend to have the same limitations passed down secondhand from our family, from our professors, our teachers, the media, from other people, our friends, our fair weather friends, and they tell us that this the world is flat. They tell us that it's not round. They tell us that uh, the sun revolves, but the earth doesn't. And we believe things that at the time seem to be fact, but those are only opinions. And they're opinions that have been since proven to be scientifically incorrect. So I think look to see where your prejudices come from and realize they're most likely opinions rather than facts. Many of my assumptions in boyhood were just prejudices that I finally had to learn that I could get out of them. But they were very real to me because even though they were invisible, they stopped me in my tracks and they seemed like they were a prison. You give an example actually of a flea circus and I love the analogy that you make with that. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Well, yeah, when you go, you know, in the days that we had, we had a, there was a shoebox and you put little holes in it and the fleas were inside the shoebox and you put a little mini trampoline and a trapeze and incredibly, one of my daughters trained bugs the same way. She trained bugs to do a maze and she, she had it so that they were uh, operant conditioning. She gave them little rewards. And so you can either do one of two things. You can either limit someone or reward them. The limitations are as powerful as the rewards. So when you put a lid on a shoebox, the fleas will jump and hit the lid. So they'll learn to jump only six inches while they could jump six feet. So then you take the lid off the box and voila, you have a flea circus in a box with no lid, but you don't need the lid anymore. You train a dog the same way. You get a, you get a strong leash or you get an electronic fence and the dog knows that if you try to go outside it hurts so the dog has a limited uh, activity and so whenever somebody has shall we say a failure experience we end up having being a failure avoiders and we have to learn optimism by realizing that it was just a 
mirage. The flea circus is the same as the dolphins at SeaWorld. You put a mackerel on the bottom, a rope on the bottom, you tap the mackerel and you keep raising the rope and giving more, more mackerels until finally the rope is 12 feet above the pool. But they get a big mackerel if they leap 12 feet above it because the reward was so great and their capability was so good that you start on the floor and keep building toward the top. Training a flea by putting a lid on it is operant conditioning and training a dolphin and a person by reward. Train by reward rather than penalty of failure. Train by want to instead of have to. Train by can do instead of can't. Inhibition stops you. Ignition makes you go. Compulsion make, forces you. Propulsion makes you want to go. That's why I think the want to is much better than the have to. Wow. So I want to conclude the interview with something that you're pretty known for, a reason that the astronauts and their Super Bowl champions and other people that wanted to win came to you for advice. You talk about in your book, Winning for Life, that successful individuals see the act of achieving in advance, vivid, multi-dimensional, clear. Champions know what you see is who you'll be. Tell us about that. It's the old GPS system that, that we were given at our conception. If you know where you are in life, what's going for you, what's holding you back, kind of know yourself. You're the best expert on you, really. When you come to, you know where you are, then you crank into this brain, this GPS goal positioning system that you were given. You crank in a clear idea of where you're going. Now, remember, you need the address. You need the colors. You kind of need to know where it is and where it's located. And maybe there's some things along the way that are, there's an obstacle, there's a construction site, there's traffic jam. You have to look at that. You crank in a clear destination. You crank in, crank in where you are. Voila, the direction comes and it guides you there as clear as a bell. That's called visual motor behavioral rehearsal. The Olympians go over the bar in their mind over and over. They do the triple axle in their mind over and over until finally the brain says, I got it. I got it. You've rehearsed it enough. You've done it enough in here that I, I feel that we can do it on the ice as well as in the brain. Because in the brain, you don't fall. You don't have the, the failure. You can, you can do it in simulation without the failure that you have to overcome. You don't have to dust yourself off in your brain. You can, you can repeat this dress rehearsal over and over again. So if you're able to visualize and you're able to repeat, repetition creates internalization if there's emotion involved. Emotion is the thing that makes us, shall we say, want to do things. Emotion plus rehearsal plus imagination equals realization and materialization. Prisoner of war, go home. Astronaut, go to the moon. Olympian, go over the bar or hit the edge of the pool. The brain is this incredible device that allows you to put in it where you're going and will take you there if you're clear and repetitive and won't allow anything to stand in your way.
So to my listeners, a little heart to heart, I was asked for my top five. I put Dennis Waitley in my top five. I think you've heard today why Dennis Waitley is in my top five of all time. I've read several of his books. I have a thousand books on my shelf, as many who have listened to me before will learn about self-help, motivation, inspiration. His books have meant a lot to me. Dennis has meant a lot to me. I urge you to go out and get Winning for Life, his newest book. If you haven't got his older books, The Psychology of Winning, Seeds of Greatness, all of them, they made a big difference for me. And as Dennis says, education is not something you just have one day. Motivation doesn't last beyond that day. You need to continuously get out there and educate yourself. Go out and get Dennis's books. Thank you so much, Dennis for being on Thank my you. show today. It's a real pleasure. And we have a lot more in common than you think. And I, I really cheer you. I think you're doing a great service to everyone. And I think you're as good as anyone that I've ever come across in our field. So I put you up also in the top five of people who are able to stimulate, create, create an awareness and be believable. And the main thing is you're real. You've got the real thing. You don't have to flaw it shall we say, overly dynamic imitation. You're as dynamic and you're as capable as any of the speakers I have, but you and I took a longer road. It took us a little longer to believe that we were confident in, in the way we project ourselves, but we got there in our own way. And you certainly have, and I appreciate very much giving me the opportunity to share with your audience. Well, Dennis, you, you, just, you just made my century. <laughs> Thank you so much for those kind words. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.